We are in a series that we've entitled Jesus, the Greatest of All Time. We're working verse by verse through the book of Hebrews, and we find ourselves in Hebrews chapter 6 this morning. Hebrews chapter 6. And so if you want to turn there, we're going to be there for our time together. And as we do, I want to bring you in on a little bit of what I knew growing up as a kid. Now, I knew when my parents were mad at me. It wasn't that they had to yell and scream. They did, but that's not how I knew. They didn't need to storm up and down the hallway to tell me they were mad, even though they did. But the way I knew the level of trouble that I was in was based on how they shared my name. It was a one-alarm issue or one-alarm trouble for Tim when they would say, Timothy. I knew I was in a little trouble, misdemeanor trouble. It moved into greater trouble when I would hear the words, Timothy Daniel. A three-alarm fire in my life was when I heard Timothy Daniel Badal. I knew it was time to head out and join the circus when neither of my parents were able to remember my name. How many of you have been there before, right? We knew there was trouble coming based on the use of our name. Well, the thing I learned about these warnings was that they always came from love. They were mad, but it always came from a place of love. Number two, they always came from a place of wanting to protect me from issues or struggles or harm that I might be putting myself into. And three, they were done for my good. Even at times I didn't feel it was as good as it could have been. It was for my good. And that's what warnings are all about. Warnings help us. Sometimes we hear about warnings before we've done anything wrong. Warnings like, hey, beware of this or, or be careful of that. Then there are warnings that happen in the midst of us doing something that we probably shouldn't. Things like, listen, in the heat of the moment, don't you dare and then fill in the blank. And then there's ones that happen afterwards and, and, and it would be like this. If you think you can do that, and not get in trouble, you've got another thing coming. I never knew what the other thing coming was, but I never liked it. And so we find ourselves having to live in a world of warnings. Now, all of that to be said, we come to another warning in the book of Hebrews. And this is one of five warnings that we're going to see. A lot of people don't like the book of Hebrews because of the warnings that the author gives. Now, the author's been writing this long sermon to these first century Hebrew Christians who had been walking with the Lord for some time, but at some point in their walk with God, they had began to be tempted to walk away from the Christian faith and go back to Judaism. And what the author is going to do is he's going to employ a two-sided response to them. We call this uh, two-sided response the carrot and the stick. The carrot, we're going to give you something you like, and the stick, we're going to give you something you don't like. So let's deal with the carrot first. The author encourages through the proclamation of God's word, the excellencies of Christ. That's the banner behind me. Jesus is the greatest of all time. And so what he says is, listen, don't give up on your faith. Don't uh, give up on persevering and enduring amidst times of trouble and difficulty. Because let me tell you, Jesus is greater than the angels. 
Jesus is greater than the prophets. Jesus is greater than the patriarchs. Jesus is greater than the Mosaic law that you have such admiration for. Jesus is greater than the Sabbath that you all long to enter into. Jesus is greater. And the word of God preaches Christ in the Old Testament and the New Testament to point to you that Jesus, without Jesus, you would be lost. And so to give up on Jesus would be the most foolish thing to do. That's the carrot. Jesus is so great. Why would you want to give up on him? Then the stick. The stick was the warning. Now there's five of them, and what he's using these warnings to do is to pause and to ponder on what it will mean to give up on God and give up on his son, Jesus Christ. And along the journey, the warnings become more and more severe. He goes on and he says, if you wander away from the truth in our text today, there's no opportunity to repent once repentance has already been given. And so be careful that you don't find yourself walking away from the Lord because the consequences of it are far more than we would want to bear. Now, Let me just put this out there. What is in front of us today has been dubbed by many theologians and preachers as the most difficult of all passages in all of Scripture. It's a difficult passage because there's a lot of disagreement on exactly what it means. And so we need discernment. But I would also add is that the positions that are taken, which we'll talk about in a moment, these positions that are taken are taken by godly men and women. And they've got good reason why they hold to the particular position that they hold to. Uh, But with every position, there are troubles along the way. And so we want to hold these uh, loosely. We want to be careful that we don't become dogmatic in these things. And maybe you'll hear your position. Maybe you've studied this already and you'll hear your position. I want to tell you I respect your position. I may not agree, but I respect it because at the end of the day, I believe that Whatever position you take, the desire of each of them is to honor God and to give him glory for the great things he has done. And so let's read the text, and then I want to give you kind of a thesis statement of where we're going, and then walk through it step by step. And so let's look at Hebrews chapter 6, verses 1 through 12. It says the following, Therefore, let us leave the elementary doctrine of Christ and go on to maturity, not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith toward God and of instruction about washing, the laying on of hands, the resurrection of the dead and the eternal judgment. And this we will do if God permits. For it is impossible in the case of those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift, have shared in the Holy Spirit and have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the age to come and then have fallen away to restore them again to repentance. Since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding him up to contempt. For land that has drunk the rain that often falls on it and produces a crop useful to those whose sake it is cultivated receives a blessing from God. But if it bears thorns and thistles, it is worthless and near to being cursed and its end is to be burned. Though we speak in this way, yet in your case, beloved, we feel sure of better things, things that belong to salvation. For God is not unjust so as to overlook your work 
and the love that you have shown for his name in serving the saints as you still do. And we desire each one of you to show the same earnestness to have the full assurance of hope until the end, so that you may not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. Let's pray. Father God, I ask now that you would speak through your word, and I pray, Lord, that it would reveal your will to us, what you would have for us to do, that it would guide us and lead us for what you want us to be. Help us through this difficult passage so that we might be able to apply the truths that are necessary for us to live upright and holy lives until you come back. We love you, and we give you praise for it in Christ's name. Amen. So where are we going? Here's my thesis. This passage, write this down. I'm going to fill in a lot of your outline in one fell swoop. This passage can cause lots of problems. It can cause lots of problems, but should motivate, it should motivate us to pause, to ponder, and to push us to maturity. This passage can cause us lots of problems, but should motivate us to pause, ponder, and push us to maturity. The reason why I tell you that is it will get really, really easy for us to focus in on the differences of opinions on this text. But I want you to know that the main thrust of this passage is to warn us to move on to godliness. No matter where we're at, no matter if we're a follower of Jesus Christ or not, wherever you are today, This passage is served as a warning to move us, to propel us, to compel us to a deeper and more robust relationship with Jesus Christ. Now, if you were to look at the different commentaries, if you were to take 12 commentaries of the book of Hebrews, in the first five chapters, there would be much agreement on what is being talked about. That would end when you get to Hebrews chapter 6, verses 1 through 12, especially verses 4 through 6. And here's the reason why. The reason why this is such a difficult passage of Scripture, first of all, begins because the writing is so difficult to follow. What I mean by that is we're not sure exactly who the writer is talking about at this very moment. Let me explain why. Notice the text. In verses 1 through 3, we see the personal, or I'm sorry, we see the pronouns of us and we. So he's talking in a plurality of people, and he's saying, okay, I'm talking about us. And he starts the passage by saying, let us. And he puts himself in that situation, in that group of people. But in verses 4 through 8, those pronouns change from us and we to those and them. And so what he was saying is, okay, let's talk about us. And then he says, now let's talk about those people and, and them. And then in verses 9 through 12, the pronoun changes to your and yours. So who's he talking about? And who's to be listening? That's a problem. Second problem is that if we go down a road where we just take what is being said at face value, it would seem that the Bible is contradicting itself. What it is saying is it's saying that someone is a follower of Jesus Christ 
who has experienced the goodness and grace of God in multiplicity of ways, if they were to turn away from it, they could lose their salvation. And I can give you plenty of scriptures that tell us that when a believer is a true follower of Jesus Christ, he is secure to the end. That there is nothing that can separate us from our, uh, the love of Christ that has been given to us, that we are secure in the hands of God, that no sin or no amount of sin after redemption can keep us from the redemptive salvation that we've been given in Christ Jesus. But if you just read it at face value, it sure seems like he's contradicting the Apostle Paul and Peter and other writers of the Scriptures. Third, while there are strengths... And good reasons for each view, and we're going to talk about each view in a moment. Every view, if we're really honest, even the view that you might hold to or I may hold to, have holes in them as well. That's what makes us so difficult. Because right when we go down a particular path in interpreting this text, it may work for problem one and two, but it doesn't help us in three and four. Or it may address answers three and four, but not answers one and two. And so each of them have value, but they also have weaknesses to them. And so again, be careful that we aren't dogmatic. We can disagree, but we need to recognize, again, the important thing is this is a warning to lead us to a more robust relationship with Christ no matter where we find ourselves upon reading it. So what are the positions? Let's move through them quickly. I'm not going to spend a lot of time here. Uh, there have been books that have been written regarding the four views, because there's four major views that um, are held in the interpretation of Hebrews chapter 6. Go read that, and you'll be the smartest person in your uh, small group this week. They may not want you there, but you will be the smartest one in the group. But let me help you with just short definitions of each of them. Could Hebrews chapter 6 be speaking about a rebellion that leads to a loss of salvation? For those that hold to what theologians call a more Arminian perspective, that is you put an emphasis on man's ability to choose God in salvation, then the response or thought would go this way. If I choose uh, to exhibit faith and choose God using my free will, then surely I can choose to disown God by that same free will. And so here's a follower of Jesus Christ who has decided to walk and live for Christ, but somewhere along the journey, he made a decision, I'm not going to follow him anymore. The writer says, well, then there's no repentance left. You could lose your salvation. Again, our church does not believe that. And one of the holes that uh, my Arminian friends would have to struggle with is that if it in fact says that you could lose your salvation, those friends would say, well, you could gain it back through holiness and righteousness and, and the forgiveness. But the text says once you lose it, you can't gain it back. So that creates a problem. So is it talking about having salvation and losing it? I don't think that's the case. The second thing is that it could be, and this is more of a minority view, is that it's speaking about rewards in the future for the believer. So the thinking goes this way. Hebrews is talking to a group of Christians, and there are two types of Christians. There are Christians who endure to the end and are faithful to the end, and there are those Christians that don't endure, do not persevere to the end, and that is they, they kind of fall by the wayside. Well, 
These individuals believe once you're saved, you can't lose your salvation, which I believe to be right and true. And so what is the writer talking about? He's talking about believers that don't finish well. And as a result of that, they lose out on the reward of what holiness and obedience to God looks like. And they use the example of uh, the people in the wilderness experience. And they say, listen, these people experience all of God's faithfulness and goodness. They experience all of it as the people of God. But there were some who entered the rest of God, Joshua and Caleb and their families entered the promised land. But that whole generation, because of their disobedience, did not enter the reward of obedience. They did not enter the promised land. In the text, this group of individual would look at uh, verse, uh, verse 8. Uh, we'll start with verse 7. For land, and this is an illustration the writer is giving, for land that has drunk the rain, that often falls on it and produces a crop useful to those whose sake it is cultivated, receives a blessing from God, receives a reward from God. So that's the first group. They're faithful, and when they get to heaven upon death or upon the return of Christ, they will hear, well done, good and faithful servant. But what about those who haven't been faithful? Notice it goes on. But if it bears thorns and thistles, it is worthless. That is, it's not doing what it was purposed to do. And notice what it says. And being, I'm sorry, and near to being cursed, its end is to be burned. Now notice the phraseology there that it isn't cursed, it's near to being cursed. So upon the day of judgment, there's this kind of intermediary state where you have individuals who receive the blessing and the, and the reward of holiness. There are those who receive hell and, and damnation because of their sin. And then there is this group of individuals who, because they've not lived out their faith as they were supposed to, when they approach the judgment of Christ, that they will experience a loss of rewards. And there are many popular evangelical preachers that would say this could be a loss of participation in the millennial kingdom, uh, which is the earthly reign of Christ in the, in the future. It could be a loss of authority and dominion in the new kingdom that God is creating that we will spend eternity in. Uh, the, the problem with this is it seems to go against, again, the larger picture of Scripture, and nowhere in the book of Hebrews does it clearly say that there are two, if you will, classes of Christians, obedient ones and disobedient ones. The third one, which is the most popular of views, is the idea that this is speaking about the renunciation or the renouncing of cultural Christianity. And the thinking goes like this. The book was written to a body of believers, a church very much like us. And they're gathered together and the elder of the church gets up and reads this long letter, which is a long sermon by the author of the book of Hebrews. And as they read it, the writer recognizes in a group this size, there are people who are walking with the Lord and there are others who are just going through the motions. And so what the writer is saying here is those individuals who are amongst the believers, this is the, the wheat and the tares, right? This is the sheep and the goats. Uh, this dividing mark that nobody knows, only God and those individuals may know, that they're just going through the motions. Now, they're a part of cultural Christianity, that is, they've been enlightened, they've tasted of uh, the goodness of God, they've shared in the Holy Spirit, and in doing so, 
They never were saved in the first place. This is a warning to them that if they're not careful, if they don't choose salvation today, the very things that would save them will become a bore to them because it's going to be one of those things we've been there and we've done that. There's nothing more for the gospel to present. You've heard the gospel and you've heard it over and over and over again. The chances of you coming to know Christ the millionth time you've heard the gospel is probably pretty small. In fact, the writer says it's impossible because it is not going to change. It's the same old story that you've heard over and over again. So this is a warning to those in the assembly who act like they're Christian who talk like they're Christian, but they know, and God knows, they're not believers. They know their hearts not in it. The final view is that it is reinforcing believers' security. Uh, This view is called the hypothetical view, and what it is saying is, is that this is a view that what it's doing is it's warning you about something that in essence is never really going to happen. Now you sit there and say, well, what good is that kind of warning? Let me tell you, parents, we use those warnings all the time. If you don't do this or that, if I have to come in there, I'm going to wring your neck. Are you really going to go in and wring your kid's neck? Some of you are like, yes. But let's be honest. To wring one's neck is to literally take the life from them by squeezing it out of their their neck region, right? To take the very life from them. You're not going to do that, but you're instilling this very stern warning to elicit or incite obedience. Even though this isn't going to happen, the very fear of this happening would be enough to scare someone straight. And so the idea goes this way. Brothers and sisters, you beloved, you've been walking with the Lord, but now you are being tempted to walk away from the truth. Beware, because to go away from the Lord, to apostatize, to give up on the faith, is to not have anything left to bring you back. Now, that's not going to happen. Why? Because you're secure in the hands of Almighty God, and that should bring you to a place of great fear, to continue to walk, knowing that you can rest secure that as a follower of Jesus Christ, this would never come upon you. Do you see where there's value in some of what I'm talking about and then there's problems with each of them? Now, I would say that as a church, we would probably most resonate with three and four. All right. Now, I know some of you may be from other traditions and you may be at a different place, and I respect that. But for the sake of moving forward, I want to kind of navigate views three and four into our thing. Because I think there's value in a church this size for those that are here. And I'm going to imagine right now there are some of you are here, but you're not here. There are some of you who are fellowshipping, but you're not fellowshipping. There are some of you participating, but you're not participating. There are some that show that you're enjoying this, but you're really not enjoying this. And I want to speak to you and challenge you that if you're not careful, you may find at the worst time whatsoever to find out you're on the wrong side of salvation. Likewise, I want to affirm those who are walking with the Lord that as you walk with the Lord, as you feast on the goodness of God, you can rest assured that this 
isn't going to befall you, that once we are saved, we will endure to the end. And I'm going to explain how in a couple moments. So with all that said, what do I want you to walk away from? I'm going to go back to my thesis statement. Uh, This causes lots of problems. We've talked about the problems, but really what this text does for us is it causes us to pause, ponder, and push us on to maturity. That's what God wants us to learn through his word. So let's take a moment and pause and ask the question, what is my status? In verses 1 through 3, we have the writers saying that we need to leave the elementary doctrine of Christ and go on to maturity. We need to be moving. And the question is for everyone, whether you're playing games or truly participating in this, are you in a relationship with Jesus Christ that's moving you from spiritual infancy to maturity? Nobody can answer that question except for you. Now, notice in verses 1 through 3, he lists all of these things. These individuals may have thought they were believers because they had added a little Jesus to a whole bunch of other things. Notice the list of things that he talks about. Repentance uh, from uh, dead works and faith towards God and of instruction about washings or baptisms, other translations say. The laying on of hands, the resurrection of the dead and eternal judgment. He says, I want to talk about all these things because these are a part of the Christian faith. But what he wants you to also know is they're a part of the Jewish faith as well. And what he's saying is is the elementary things are the things that uh, are the corresponding things between Christianity and Judaism. Judaism talks about repentance from uh, from dead works. Judaism talks about faith in God. Judaism talks about the laying on of hands and of the washings, whether baptism or other ritual washings that take place. Judaism talked about eternal uh, eternal life and, and the judgment that's going to take place. These individuals hadn't grown all that much. They had just added a little Jesus to their mix. Be careful, church, that you don't become inoculated with religion, but you become involved in a relationship with Jesus Christ. And that's why the author is saying over and over again, it's not about rituals. It's not about religion. It's about Jesus, who's the greatest of all time. Live for him, love him, and make him the most important thing that you ever are a part of in this world. And so he's asking the question, where are you at? Where, what is your status? Now he moves then for us to ponder We need to ponder what things prove my salvation. Now, there's a couple things we've got to be careful with here. Number one, we need to not be fooled that participation proves our possession. Because it doesn't. Participation does not prove possession. In verses 4 through 6, the author lists these things and he says, okay, Are you experiencing these things? And all of them in their midst could have said, yes, we're experiencing enlightenment. We're experiencing the sharing of the Holy Spirit and and a part of all these things. But that doesn't mean you possess a relationship with Jesus Christ. Let me explain. Growing up in this church, I was a part of youth group here. And I will tell you one of the great heritages of Village Bible Church, which should be shared in any history of this church, is God has blessed this church with outstanding student ministries for years, all right? We have had a lot of pastors that have come and gone, but over our history of a church, we've experienced two great 
youth pastors, and we should be very thankful for that, all right? It's kind of amazing. Youth pastorate positions, the tenure of an average youth pastor is somewhere around 12 to 14 months. Our two youth pastors have spanned more than 15 years in each of their pastorates. Now, in being a part of a great youth group and a great youth pastor, I have seen that participation doesn't always mean possession. Let me explain. I am now 20-some years, 25 years, from my high school days. And as I look back, a part of social media, Facebook and that, I see some of my peers have a vibrant and healthy relationship with Jesus Christ. Some of you are in this room right now. Some of them we have sent onto more uh, ministry and missionary endeavors. God has used our youth group days in awesome ways. But as I look out, can I say, if not half maybe even the majority of people, they were a part of the same missions trips. They were a part of the same Bible studies. They were a part of the same outreaches that they were a part of, that we were a part of. And I look at them now and they're not anywhere near. They're not even in the area code of Jesus Christ. But we participated in the same stuff. We saw the same moving of the Spirit. We saw kids get saved. How could they not be possessing God? In fact, some of them are are, are totally antithetical to the things of God. They're adversarial to the things of God. How could that happen? Because listen, church, participating in things doesn't mean you possess it. And sadly, listen to me, if you hear anything today, there are some of you today that will stand before Almighty God and listen, you'll bring up my name and you'll say, I was a part of Tim Biddall's church. Can I tell you, don't do that. I was a part of Village Bible Church and we did a lot of great things and and Jesus will say to you on that great day, yeah, you participated, but you never possessed me. You never owned me. You never made me your all in all. And and brothers and sisters, I don't want to scare you into thinking you don't have salvation, but I want to challenge, I want to warn you, if you think you can play, you can fake out everybody here, but you won't fake out the Spirit of Almighty God. And so be careful that just because you're here doesn't mean you're here. Just because you're apart doesn't mean you're apart. Participation doesn't guarantee possession. But notice, what are these things that he writes about in verses 4 through 6? These are the things that when we are filled with them, will provide us the power to endure. And so uh, people, they can be used to make people think that they're in when they're not in. But what we need to be doing is these things need to be going on in our lives. So to help us understand verses 4 through 6, it gets clear as we are a part of a life, that is enlightened, that is tasting, that is sharing in the Spirit, as we see these things and make these a part of our life, not just participating in them, but owning them, they are going to give us the faith, they're going to give us the endurance to persevere. And so let's talk about these things very quickly. To be enlightened by God's Word, that is to see its value to see the value of God. Can you say that this morning? You have come here, and this week you were enlightened by God's word. You saw its value and how it brought wisdom to every facet of your life. Can you say that you've tasted the heavenly gift of God? Now, right away, 
What some would say of position three is that these individuals nibbled a little bit. It was an appetizer to them. And what they would say is my peers in my youth group, they nibbled, they tasted a little taster piece of the goodness of God, but then they gave it up. Kind of like what some of us do with sushi, right? Some of us love sushi and others we go, I don't want any more of that. And so we push it away. Here's the problem with position three. If that's the way that the text is supposed to be read, it goes against that word tasted. The only other place that this Greek word is used speaks of Jesus. And it says this, Jesus tasted death for everyone. Did Jesus just nibble on death? Did Jesus just kind of use it as a little appetizer and then push it away? No, Jesus in all its fulfillment tasted all of death when he died on the cross. And so what this idea is, is we consume all of who Christ is, all of the goodness of God. Now it goes on and it says we've experienced this goodness of God's word. That is, we've seen God move. And the idea here is that as we read the scriptures, we are seeing part and parcel with the stories of the great men and women of faith, we have seen how God has moved in those ways as well. Now, I have never stood before a giant and had to strike down a giant with a couple smooth stones and a slingshot, right? But I've seen God move in ways where the different giants in my life have been brought low. I've seen God provide for me, even though I have not seen manna come down from heaven. I've seen God in a very similar way show himself faithful. So as you read the scriptures, are you seeing God not just move in the life of others, but you're seeing God move in your life as well? Finally, are you sharing in the spirit? That is that are you being filled with the Holy Spirit, being filled in such a way that the spirit is leading and guiding you, you not leading the spirit. You see, this is what the author says in verse 7 when he says that we are good, fertile land that produces much fruit because God has given all that we need for growth. So it's not that we're doing it and we deserve the praise. It is that we are receptive to the rain that God brings, which produces the fruit from the ground as God has cultivated it in our lives. So listen, Christianity is a life that's filled with ups and downs. It's filled with sin and stumbles and mess ups, but it is a life, listen to me, brothers and sisters, that will produce good fruits. It will produce good fruits. And so if you're not seeing fruit in your life, then the question is, are you a follower of Jesus Christ? Are you simply participating? Have you possessed it? Now, those that are true believers who drink deeply into the things of God, they were struggling. But notice what the author says, and I'll close quickly with this. He says the following, though we speak in this way, this is where point four gets its perspective, though we speak in this way, yet in your case, beloved, we feel sure of better things, things that belong to salvation. For God is not unjust as to overlook, notice one, your work, Number two, and the love that you have shown for his name. And number three, in serving the saints as you still do. 
And we desire each one of you to show the same earnestness to have that full assurance of faith until the end so that you may not be sluggish. That word sluggish is the same word we learned last week, dull of hearing. That you wouldn't be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. So let's finish up with this. What is it to do? It is to push believers to maturity. And so what the challenge is, is that the writer finishes this passage by saying, since you've identified that Jesus is the greatest of all time, since Jesus has done all that he has done for us, since he has given all that he's given for us, since he has died for us and bought for us eternal life in him, the only response that a true follower of Jesus Christ will have is twofold, to keep going and to keep growing to get going and to keep growing. Get going, don't be sluggish. Don't allow the distractions of life. Don't allow other pursuits to keep you from moving on the race that's marked out for us. And to keep growing, to leave the elementary truths and to go on to maturity. What he is saying in those two phrases, to go on to maturity and to keep growing in the faith is found in the illustration that he gives in verse seven. Notice, for the land that has drunk the rain that often falls and it produces a crop useful to us who for its sake is cultivated. So why do we get going? Why do we keep growing? Because what we're doing is we're cultivating the ground. We see this in the fields around us. We're cultivating the ground so that when it rains, we are able to receive the grace that God gives us, not only for today, but for tomorrow. How many of us need grace for today and hope for tomorrow? We all do as followers of Christ. And what we need to do is we need to cultivate the ground and allow the rain of the grace and mercy of God on a daily basis to rain down on us. And as we do, we will have the assurance that we are secure in the hand of Almighty God. And so let's take warning. Maybe you find yourself today rebelling against God. Take warning Take warning to get right with God before it is too late. Maybe you find yourself playing games with God and you're acting the part, but really you're not a follower of Jesus Christ. Take warning before it's too late. Maybe you're a follower of Jesus Christ and you're tempted to give up and give in. Take warning because the way of obedience is better than the way of disobedience and do that before it's too late. Whatever it is, God wants to warn us in this text that living for him is better than living without him. Amen? And so take warning and get going and keep growing for your good and for the glory of God.